0: Hey, y'all, this is John Laurence coming to you from the Head of the Bed, a podcast for the anesthesia community. Today, you're going to hear from Tracy Young, who is a CRNA and CEO of YPS Anesthesia Services. He and I caught up recently while we were down in Houston teaching with Cornerstone Anesthesia Conferences, and I'm stoked to bring you his story and perspective on the business of anesthesia. Tracy is a sought after expert presenter on the business of anesthesia. Giving talks nationally on topics ranging from billing, reimbursement, and compliance to entrepreneurship and personal finance. Tracy received his Master of Science in Nurse Anesthesia from Texas Wesleyan in 2000 and his Master of Business Administration with a focus in healthcare from George Washington University in 2008. Tracy founded YPS Anesthesia Services in 2003 and currently serves as its Chief Executive Officer. Based in Louisiana, YPS is comprised of over 450 anesthesia providers, currently operating in six states through close to 60 contracts with hospitals, endoscopy centers, and surgery centers. While managing and growing his business is the primary focus of Tracy's career, he also serves on the board and is a past president of the Louisiana State Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Tracy lectures widely on the business of anesthesia at various trade meetings, CRNA continuing education conferences, and academic anesthesia programs. If you have any interest whatsoever in the business of anesthesia, 1099 opportunities, or simply how to lead a successful career as an anesthesia provider, you won't waste your time tuning into this episode. If you want to hear more from Tracy on his advice for young entrepreneurs and the specifics of pursuing contracts, getting started in billing, and his perspective on the current state of the healthcare market, be sure to check out his interview on Jason Duprat's podcast called The Healthcare Entrepreneur Academy Podcast. They sat down over the summer of 2019, and I'll put a link in the show notes to their conversation. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Tracy, I'm super stoked to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for agreeing to chat with me today.
1: Oh, no problem, John. Thanks for having me.
0: I would love for you to tell the listeners just a little bit about who you are and what your business is. I mean, what you have a unique perspective in the anesthesia community, so what, what kind of work do you do?
1: Well, my, my work today is a lot different than, than what my work used to be uh, just 10, 15 years ago. My work nowadays is is not really focused on clinical anesthesia anymore. I spend the majority of my days... Uh, focused on the business aspects and growing the business typically uh, makes up a large portion of my day as well. And working with my executive team of chief financial officer and chief operating officer and all of our different um, non-clinical staff, making sure that um, our schedules are, are being filled correctly and that recruiting is being done and following up with credentialing and linking for for third-party payers and hospital credentialing, uh, those duties make up probably the largest part of my day yep. and then the remainder is focused on business development and business growth. So, uh, conference calls with, uh, prospective hospitals, uh, filling out RFPs and completing uh, requests for proposals for hospitals that are looking for, um, for anesthesia services as well. Those things, um, probably take up about 20% of my day. Um, there's a CRNA shortage going on currently and, um, A large portion of my day is also made up of uh, recruiting and retention of CRNAs for the facilities that we do have and our new facilities coming online. That's um, a a very time consuming effort when there's a shortage of CRNAs. Talk
0: a little bit about how many contracts do you have? Where's your business located? What kinds of facilities do you manage?
1: Absolutely. So we're, we're located in Louisiana as our corporate offices in South Central Louisiana. We're now upwards of 60 contracts in six states. And our facilities range from single-specialty ASCs, multi-specialty ASCs, uh, surgical hospitals that are owned by surgeons as well, but they're licensed as hospitals, so they have inpatient stay, and then community and rural hospitals and some slightly larger, closer to tertiary care hospitals as well. But that's not really our niche in the marketplace. We're more community and rural hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers with uh four, five, six operating rooms and less. So not, not the really big, large facilities. We focus on um, 10 operating rooms and less in general. Yeah. So it's kind of our market size of what we like.
0: And you said you've got, uh, you're trying to recruit. So what's the pitch? If there's CNAs <laughs> out there that are listening, uh, what what kind of positions do you have available?
1: We, we have a couple of different positions in different areas. And, you know, what, what we pitch as a company is that we don't view ourselves as an employer or our CRNAs or our anesthesiologists as employees are working for us. We view ourselves as working for our providers to make sure that they have the tools necessary to perform the jobs and the duties that they need. And we work on their behalf to make sure that uh, their needs are met. So it's a little different than the common employee-employer relationship. And... um, we don't really micromanage our providers yeah. as well. We like to give them the tools to go out and take ownership of their job and do a good job and um, take a lot of pride in their work, and uh, it, it works out pretty well. We have a, we have a high retention rate in the business. Oh, that's good. And and these are these are 1099 positions. Correct. So. Um, Our contracts are basically 1099 contracts with with providers, and it really fits into the mindset of us working for them as opposed to them working for us. We have um, have about 450 providers linked and credentialed for us at this time uh, in six different states, and right now I think we only have – three to four positions open, which is uh, which is pretty good, but it still keeps me up at night because the last thing we want to do is to not have an operating room covered. We right. always want to make sure all of our operating rooms are covered.
0: Right, right. That's fascinating. We're going to talk more about your involvement in business uh, a little later. It's something that you speak about a lot at CRNA conferences, and I'm glad you do. I, I think that you give one of the best business talks that I've heard uh, someone give in terms of the business of anesthesia from a CRNA perspective. So you also do a lot of work with the AANA. Tell us a little bit about your involvement with uh, the association at the state and national level.
1: My involvement with the uh, Louisiana Association of Nurse Anesthetists started a little over 10 years ago. And it was an issue that a regulatory issue came up with one of our CRNA providers. He was actually reprimanded by the Board of Nursing as as prescribing without having prescriptive authority um, after hours on a patient with a PCA that had orders that said consult anesthesia for any breakthrough pain. And um, the way the statute and the rules and regulations were written at the time, they were pretty gray and they weren't very clear. So um, I reached out to my state association, asked them for help, asked them for clarity and see what we can do. And it started a relationship where I saw what our state was doing for providers and making sure that everyone was um, had a voice in, in this. And so I ran for a board of director position and did that for about six years and ran for a vice president and then ran for president elect and served two terms as the president of the association. And subsequently, the, we actually cleaned up some of the rules and regulations in the state. So CRNAs do have a limited perioperative prescriptive authority inside licensed facilities in the state of Louisiana without having to have a collaborative agreement or any other, um, any other type of agreement with a physician. And it, it took a while to get it done, a slow-moving slow process in the regulatory world, but uh, it was the impetus to get me involved, and I'm really glad I did.
0: And so you were two-term president of the Louisiana Association, and then you also, uh, you teach regularly at CRNA conferences, so I know you're exceptionally busy with your company. How do you find time to teach, or what's what's the motive uh, behind teaching so much?
1: In CRNA programs, and and, and the same thing with um, physician anesthesiologist programs, there's not a lot of business that's taught through training. It's all focused on clinical training. And... Most of the learning I've done over the past 15 to 17 years has been through trial and error. And a lot of that, you learn most from your mistakes. And what I want to do is to help uh, providers understand that there's a whole other world out there for business in the world of anesthesia. And to help them understand how that works and to learn from some of the mistakes I've made in the past that way, if they ever get into a place where they can get a contract or start doing more of the business side of anesthesia, at least they've heard some of it before. And when I started, there wasn't a whole, there wasn't a big network of CRNAs or that you can call on or rely on to help you out. I think I just got my first cell phone back then, so it's not like we could just text someone or, or go right. onto social media and ask questions for others. And right now, there's a, there's a lot more of a I feel an entrepreneurial spirit going on in, in the anesthesia community. And I just feel it's a way for me to give back for the success of him.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did you know that you wanted to go in and be a business owner when you first started out as a
1: CRNA? I did not. This was never a grand plan. Started with one facility, it's turned into another, and then another, and it just kind of kept growing. So there was, there was never a grand plan of, of of being a business owner.
0: I feel like folks that are in similar positions as yours that have multiple contracts multi-state contracts in terms of anesthesia businesses that that's pretty common um, it's a pretty common facet of their story that they start off with one contract and no playbook there's no there's no set of guidelines out there or a how to on how to be an anesthesia business owner uh, but it grows
1: organically that's exactly right I, I quite frequently I have CRNAs reach out to me and ask for mentorship to help them get their first contract and to help them along to, to start an anesthesia business. And um, I often feel I give them pretty bad advice because there's no magic button to get that first contract. You have to be in the right place at the right time yeah. and have built the trust of those around you that, that they'll trust you to give you that first contract. And, and the way you do that is you show up every day for work and you do a good job and you take good care of patients and take care of the surgeons and and the nurses and and hospital administrators. So it's not, there's no magic bullet to go out and start an anesthesia business. It's really hard to get that first facility to give you, to trust you to take over their contract.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, and subsequently a lot of hard work that comes before and after that in terms of contract management and that kind of stuff. When you, I'm fascinated that, so you go around and you talk to CRNAs all over the nation at conferences, at uh, state associations. And I would venture to say that the majority of your audience are probably W2 CRNAs and you're giving, you know, one to four hours of content on the business of anesthesia. What do you hope that CRNAs get from your talks when you're talking to you? I mean, sometimes you've got, you know, today uh, we've probably got 60 or 70 CRNAs at a conference that we're speaking at, and uh, I think there was about a 60-40 split between W-2s and 1099s, which seems to be a little bit higher than average in terms of that number of, of 1099s. But what do you hope for CRNAs who are W-2s to get from your talks?
1: That's a great question. And it, it's always something I struggle with um, because it, it's it's difficult to know the business acumen and of the learners that are in the audience. Sometimes they have other business owners in the audience and sometimes it's W2 CRNAs who've never really thought about the business of anesthesia. So how to make it relevant to both sets of, of individuals to to make sure that they get something out of the the content that I'm providing. But in general what I like to do and the reason why I do this is so that CRNAs can see the value that they provide, not just to their patients and to those directly around them, but to the healthcare system as a whole. And trying to tie in the individual patient interaction all the way up to the macroeconomics of publicly traded companies who have anesthesia arms or, or is something that um, I find fascinating, and hopefully the audience does as well, too.
0: Yeah, it is very interesting. I think you do a good mix of of talking to CRNAs in terms about what they can do as individuals you know, to better the environment around them, all the way up to venture capitalism and these massive conglomerate anesthesia groups that are out there. What are the most common questions that you get from CRNAs when you're speaking about the business of anesthesia? What do you think the, uh, the knowledge gaps are?
1: It varies greatly. Uh, a lot of times it's related to billing. A lot of times they don't understand how the, uh, how base units are, where you get base units, where they come from, how they're derived, time units, uh, what conversion factors are. To determine what a reimbursement should be for a case, that's a pretty frequent um, basic thing about anesthesia billing that that often comes up that you really have to start with the basics and understanding that before you can talk about anything more complex in the world of, um, of the business of anesthesia. Another knowledge gap that, that I frequently see is related to regulatory compliance uh, around the business of anesthesia. If you're not familiar with the regulatory world in healthcare, you can easily run a file and potentially have violations of whether it be the anti-kickback statutes or Stark law, some of these compliance issues. And uh, I find there's a large knowledge gap in CRNAs currently that are providing services that sometimes could be in violation of some of these statutes.
0: Right, and I think you give a whole hour-long talk on compliance-related issues, if I'm
1: not mistaken. I do, I talk about Stark Law, I talk about anti-kickback statutes, and I spend a lot of time talking about different case studies of uh, either yeah. CRNAs that have ran afoul and had to pay fines or and, and gotten into trouble, and also CRNAs that have blown the whistle on other individuals that were um, committing violations or committing fraud through federal billing. And through case studies, I find that the audience gets to, it's a take-home message that they really understand that's a real-life CRNA and these are real-life issues that are happening out there.
0: How, do, how does that happen? I mean, how do people run afoul and fraud? Are they intentionally trying to get away with something that they shouldn't? Are, are most of these cases of intent or just ignorance?
1: Most are ignorance, honestly, yeah. and, it, and it's a shame to say that. Um, Stark Law is a very complex and long um, <laughs> statutory law that, that was passed. And there's a lot of moving parts to it. There's different safe harbors, but what I find most of all is when when individuals get into the business of healthcare, they don't know these laws exist. Right, and when right. they do hear about them, a lot of times they don't make sense because they don't apply to other businesses. Uh, whether you, if you're running an oil field business, there's certain things that you can do to help induce referrals and to help grow your business that you're not allowed to do in the healthcare industry. And unless you're educated on that, it's pretty easy to run afoul of it.
0: That's very interesting. Um, So for the listeners out there that are W2CRNAs and they're thinking about picking up a hospital contract or maybe joining a group that is 1099, what advice would you have for those W2CRNAs making the step over to 1099?
1: Be prepared. Educate yourself on the front end as much as you can. Make sure you get a good healthcare attorney to review all of your contracts and your agreements and then surround yourself with people that are like-minded, that are going to provide a great service and work hard with you as well. That
0: sounds great. So healthcare attorney, any other other members of the team, I always hear accountants are a big deal.
1: Yeah. So besides healthcare attorney, and and briefly to talk about healthcare attorneys, I, I think there's a common misconception among providers that if they hire an attorney, that the attorney is going to be an expert in all aspects of law. And that's technically not factual. Just like in healthcare, you wouldn't go see a urologist for a earache or, right, right, or right. if you're having a stroke, you don't want to go see uh, an orthopedic surgeon. So um, same thing in, in in law, their healthcare attorneys really understand the nuances of these anti-kickback statutes and all these uh, all these other potential violations that you can run afoul of. So you really need to find someone who's focused on healthcare if you're gonna if you're gonna be dealing in a healthcare business. Yeah. And besides getting a good healthcare attorney, I think the next most important aspect is finding someone that can do the billing for you and do a good job for you on the billing. If you're gonna do it yourself, it, there's a a lot of expense, upfront cost, and um, work and learning that goes into doing it yourself. So if you outsource a billing company, you really need to find someone that's going to be as passionate about your money as you are. And that's difficult to find. Um, And you really want someone, if it's an anesthesia business, that is focused on anesthesia billing. In other words, they're not billing for other specialties. All they're focused on is anesthesia billing, and they're experts in anesthesia billing. Because anesthesia is a very unique specialty in healthcare, we're the only specialty that can build for time. None of the other specialties can build for the time that they have uh, providing services to a patient.
0: I think one of the you shared a quote um, from this morning's talk that uh, nobody's going to care more about your money than you do.
1: That's that's correct, and we've been through three billion companies uh, through the life of our uh, of YPS Anesthesia since I started in two thousand and three, and it's really hard to find someone to be as passionate about your billing and collections as you are and to provide the level of service because they interact with our patients as well too on the back end after right. they receive a bill. Um, we pride ourselves on being responsive, um, taking care of patients and providing them a good customer service experience. And you lose that potentially when you outsource your billing. So someone else is now handling your clients for you. Uh, so one, they have to really be passionate about the billing and collections and go the extra mile, which means fighting denials, uh, working hard on following up claims and making sure that you're getting paid everything you should get paid for the services that you render. And then beyond that is making sure that their customer experience is also a pleasant uh, customer experience as well.
0: Yeah, that's great. For the SRNAs out there, maybe CRNAs who've only ever worked in, in W2, they've not thought much about uh, stepping over to C99. 1099 does not necessarily mean independent practice.
1: Is that right? That's correct. So 1099 is just an IRS code that's related to, to how your income is reported to the federal government for the services you provide. And essentially, it just means you're an independent contractor. It doesn't mean that you're providing independent autonomous anesthesia care. It just means that you're not an employee of the individual that you're providing your services to. If you think about how uh, a home is built, you may hire a general contractor who then subcontracts out to roofing specialists, who then subcontracts out to framing specialists. Those are all independent contractors of the general contractor. And underneath each subcontractor, they may have employees or independent contractors as well, providing yeah. either some of the labor or the services there. And in healthcare and in anesthesia specifically, as an independent contractor provider for anesthesia services, we don't provide you the tools to do the anesthesia as a, as a contractor. We don't provide you with the training and the expertise. You come already knowing how to do anesthesia. We don't really tell you when to work. We allow you to have flexible scheduling to meet the needs of the facility in concert with a, a team of other anesthesia providers.
0: Yeah, I think the concept that I wanted to just make sure that um, folks understand is that you can still find yourself in an anesthesia care team model as a 1099 contractor. And 1099 has all kinds of tax benefits that are different than what a W-2 employee is facing, uh, but you may still find yourself working with physician anesthesiologists and other other anesthesia providers as part of a team.
1: That's a great point. And one of the other things that the IRS looks at for whether you're a 1099 or a W-2 employee is the do you exert any control over how the activity is, is performed? Hmm. So theoretically, uh, a more restrictive medically-directed model Uh, is exerting more control over how the anesthesia is performed. So those CRNAs may be slightly more at risk for being misclassified as 1099 versus W2, as opposed to CRNAs who are working, even if it's an anesthesia care team where it's a collaborative model, where there's still physician anesthesiologists working with the CRNAs, but there's no the element of control is not as great as with medical direction. Those things to consider as a W2 and 1099.
0: Right, right. And there's a whole can of worms that we could get into in terms of uh, the difference between practice models in terms of billing and then scope of practice in terms of state laws and hospital credentialing regulations and that kind of stuff. Because I I think many people, even physician anesthesiologists I've met, don't really understand that medical direction is a billing term. It, it's not really an exertion of authority over a CRNA or, you know, you could work in a state where you have independent practice. The state regulations is different than the hospital regulations, and those two things are different than the billing model.
1: Absolutely. I recently gave a, a talk at the MGMA in New Orleans on different practice models. And in researching that, I learned a little bit about the history of medical direction. Now, what is the MGMA for listeners MGMA stands know? for uh, Medical Group Management Association. So it's uh, group managers for for practice group managers. So it was their annual meeting in New Orleans this year. In researching the history of medical direction, I really found it interesting that prior to the inaction of the seven steps for TEFRA, uh, physician anesthesiologists would be able to bill for 50% of the cases for CRNAs and technically not really have to be present, right. and they can, they can medically direct any number of CRNAs prior to that time as well too. So Medicare started making these restrictions to somewhat say, if you're gonna be involved in the care, these are the things that you have to do in order to get reimbursed for it. And that's how TEFRA came about. It's strictly a billing term for medical direction and strictly related to, um, to how pay is divided between the two providers if they're both involved in the anesthesia care. And I think, as most of the listeners may know, medical direction is split 50-50 between a physician anesthesiologist and the certified registered nurse anesthetist. The reimbursement, uh, if there's 100% of the allowable, 50% goes to the anesthesiologist and 50% goes to the CRNAs. In
0: your perspective, how many places nationally embrace a medical direction billing model? Is it common or is medical supervision and independent practice more common?
1: That's a great question. Um, I don't know the exact numbers. I do know that medical supervision, which you brought up, is a different billing term. It only makes up about 2% of Medicare claims for all of anesthesia claims. So it's a very uncommon model for medical supervision. The um, medical direction is probably just north of 50 to 60%, if I had to guess. And the remainder is uh, QZ, which is, uh, implies CRNA. It's billed just under the CRNA number. QZ billing, 100% of the allowable goes to the CRNA. And that is usually the modifier that is used whenever medical direction is not met due to one of the seven steps falling out.
0: Right, seven steps of TEFRA, which are seven requirements for physician engagement in the perioperative experience. You know, they have to be present for induction and pre op assessment and critical things that go on, emergence, those kinds of things. Uh, what I think is fascinating, kind of going down the rabbit hole a little bit on, on those billing models is that many uh physician anesthesiology groups that employ crnas still bill qz so it might be literally a medical supervision practice you know you've got a md that's looking at three or four or five rooms and crnas are in the rooms but they're billing as if they're an independent crna group
1: absolutely so qz is one of the fastest growing modifiers that are being used for for anesthesia service delivery and the main reason is compliance medical direction, uh, with the seven steps of TEFRA that, that the physician anesthesiologist must perform in order to build medical direction. Anytime one of those is not met and medical direction is still billed is a potential fraud case. Right. And anytime there's a false claims action potential, you run, your liability starts increasing and it gets a lot riskier that potentially you can have to refund certain claims that are, that were already paid to you. So, um, The QZ model is growing in the anesthesia industry, mainly because of compliance risk uh, as one of the primary drivers of that.
0: And I know folks that look at like, you know, big data that kind of muddles the picture because you look at the billing and it looks like a CRNA did that case independently. You're using that modifier, but there may in fact be physicians involved in that care.
1: Absolutely. When the physician and the CRNA both work for the same company, it really doesn't matter how the pot is split in reimbursement the money's still going into the same bucket of money that's being divided up to pay salaries and pay insurance and pay the overhead of the anesthesia company. So the thought process is is we need to mitigate any compliance risk of medical direction and those claims falling out or potentially being considered fraud. And QZ is kind of the perfect answer for that. Yeah. but. Um, as you stated, the common misconception is if it's billed QZ, is that it's CRNA only, but that's not, um, that's not always the case. Not
0: necessarily the case. And then yet medical direction billing in that way, if the two providers don't work for the same group, that's often a common uh, billing modality, if I'm not mistaken, because it assures that the physician anesthesiology group uh, maintains 50% of the reimbursement rate.
1: That's exactly right. So in anesthesia, we can't get paid for our pre-op assessments or and post-op assessments. That's all bundled into the base units of the cases that we're performing. So for a phys- if a physician anesthesiologist is supervising CRNAs or medically directing CRNAs, the only way they can generate revenue is through a billing code of either medical direction or medical supervision. And we've already mentioned that medical supervision makes up only about 2% of Medicare yep. claims because the physician anesthesiologist is only allowed to collect... Three base units for those cases, and a potential fourth unit if they document that they're present for induction. And we know that most cases performed in the hospital are over 10 total anesthesia units. So if medical direction is used, 50% goes to each provider of the total units that are provided. right, And if it's a 12 unit case, maybe only three units goes to the anesthesiologist. The CRNA still is able to collect 50% of that 12 unit case. So there's six units that the CRNA is able to collect on, but the six and the three, the nine units, there's three units that are left over that don't get billed for. They, that's get, interesting. they get lost and that's why medical supervision only makes up about 2% of Medicare. Yeah, that sounds pretty terrible.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, we could go down the rabbit hole of billing uh, for a, a couple of hours. Uh, it, it's a fascinating world. I do want to shift gears and hit a couple of other higher level things. In your talks on business, you typically take a short divergence and you give CRNA's tips for basically how to get along in the workplace, you know, how to, and these are good for whether you're a W-2, a 1099, a business owner, uh, whatever track these uh, providers are looking at getting on, uh, I think you do a really nice job at just giving some basic coaching on how to be functional as a CRNA, how to see yourself as a service provider, how to get along with others. You mentioned some things like the three A's of anesthesia. Uh, You got a story I'm gonna ask you about here in a minute from, uh, from Nick Saban. So, uh, will you talk a little bit about some of the advice that you give to CRNAs about how to just be a functional professional in today's healthcare environment?
1: It's funny that you mentioned that. I, that was never really planned part of my talk for for these CRNA meetings. I get invited to different uh, schools of nurse anesthesia to speak to their graduating seniors, usually while they're studying for their, their national certification exam right before graduation. And they bring me in and ask me to speak to them about the business of anesthesia, about billing, uh, about certain things for W2 versus 1099 to kind of help them kickstart their career whenever, whenever they're getting started. And I started putting some of that, um, the talks into just overall success in anesthesia practice for the students. And it's kind of merged its way into my CRNA talks as well. And i talk sometimes about the three A's and it's uh, being amicable, being affable, and being available. I was told that when I was a young CRNA uh, nearly 20 years ago, that that was the key to success in the anesthesia industry, is to make sure that you're all three of the three A's. And the focus there is that, really, as an anesthesia provider, you should be seen, you should be available between cases, when the surgeon's ready to roll, be there, be ready to go, an emergency pops up in the emergency room, be available, Uh, difficult IV stick and pre-op, you're there, you're seen, you're available, you help. And then amicable and affable, just focus on providing a quality service and a good experience for patients and nurses and surgeons. Too often in anesthesia, I think we forget that we're actually in the service industry. Right. And our clients are pretty diverse. It's not just the patient. Uh, The patient is number one, we want patient safety. That's obviously the most important but we forget that the surgeons are our clients as well. The nurses in the room are our clients as well. Housekeeping, our anesthesia techs, uh, the cafeteria workers, whenever we go down and pick up food for we're trying to grab a quick bite to lunch, everyone we interact with essentially forms a view of what anesthesia is and who CRNAs are. Yep. So the focus should be on, a, uh, on the fact that we do provide a service, we're in a service industry, and it, once you accept that, and understand that it really becomes easier to to have a rewarding and successful career
0: yeah i think it's very interesting it's it's such a good word i think for the w2 crnas out there i think for a lot of crnas who work in w2 models It's very easy to just think, you know, I'm an employee just like everybody else, and so I can kind of, you know, bitch and moan about uh, the typical complaints along with folks. But I think I have learned so much from CRNAs who are in the business world to reorient that to say that, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to maintain that contract with the hospital. If you're a hospital employee, maybe maybe it's a little bit different. But the business world kind of operates on that level of groups are replaceable. uh, Individuals are replaceable. And so it pays dividends in more ways than one to be professional in the workplace.
1: I agree 100%. And in a large group as W-2 employees, sometimes it's easy for one or two disgruntled individuals to to continue to work there. They could be kind of marginalized a little bit and hidden and pushed into certain rooms and and bounced around between different surgeons and, and get away. But in a small community hospital where there's only a handful of CRNAs or anesthesiologists, anesthesiologist, everyone has to work together and they have to work as a team. One disgruntled person can really ruin the culture of a, of a hospital or a surgery department. So understanding the aspect and everyone taking ownership and taking pride in their level of service is really important for these small hospitals.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and on that note, this morning you shared a, uh, a story from, the, uh, from Nick Saban, the head coach at University of Alabama about one of his teammates. I was wondering if you would share that with us.
1: Oh, that's a great question about Nick Saban. I, I brought it up today, and I've actually never mentioned that in any of my talks before. So today was the first time I've mentioned it, and it, it's actually a—it's um, over a year. The story's over a year or so old. But a friend of mine's son was being recruited for, for college football, and Nick Saban invited him into his office, and he looked at him. He said, "Son, no one's going to deny your athletic ability. You're special. You're gifted. You're an amazing athlete, but." at this point, at this stage in your young life, you need to decide if you're going to be an and kid or a but kid. And what Nick Saban looked him in the eye and told him is they're going to say, look, he's a great athlete and he's a great leader. He's a great person. He cares about his teammates and he's a good leader and and people want to play for him. Or they're going to look at you and say, you're a great athlete, but you're not a great leader. You make poor decisions off the field. You're self-centered. You have all these other issues that don't go along with being a good leader. And at this point in your life, you need to decide if you're going to be an and kid or a but kid. And when I was told that story, it was, it was pretty impactful for me. And it, it has so much relevance, not just in the world of college athletics, but in the world of, of, of just being a human being, right. right? And how we treat other people. Do you want to be a good person or do you want to say, well, you know, Tracy's really smart, but he doesn't treat people well. Right. You never want people to say that. So you want to be an and person or a but person. Yeah. That's the first time I've I've told that story. Yeah. yeah.
0: They're a pretty good CRNA, but man, they're kind of a pain in the butt to deal with. So yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point. And just, just for all the folks out there that don't follow college uh, football, uh, and I'm in that group, Nick Saban, University of Alabama head coach, kind of a big deal.
1: (laughs) A little bit. A little bit. Uh, Even for a Louisiana guy.
0: (laughs) Oh, there you go. Nice. Uh, well, yeah, I, I appreciate that so much that you, you know, while talking about the business of anesthesia, um, and I think that that attitude permeates so much of what you do. It's just that, you know, you do provide a service as a CRNA, and I think uh, you do a great job expressing that to CRNAs who you're, who you're talking to and and helping us kind of reorient ourselves to think about um ourselves as professionals and as people who are able to provide a service and, uh, and contracts are one based upon, uh, connections and relationships. So it doesn't do anybody. any, it didn't do you any good, especially if you're trying to win contracts and that kind of stuff to roll in and, uh, be a jerk about it or, or not be your three A's, uh, amicable, affable, and and maybe, I don't know if it's most importantly, but certainly you need to be available.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. So the way I've always looked at it is when we're recruiting and going through the uh, the process of interviewing CRNAs is to really have them understand that that's our mindset and that that's kind of the culture of who we are so that if it ever comes to us potentially losing an anesthesia contract, we want the nurses in the room running to administration. We want the surgeons admi- running to administration. Oh, that's a great point. We want housekeeping. Like, no, don't don't get rid of these guys right. and gals. They're great. We love how they how they treat us and how they treat patients. So, it makes it a lot more difficult to um, to potentially lose anesthesia contracts when you're providing a great service like that.
0: Right. It reminds me of. Uh, uh, I was just looking at his name. I think it's uh, yeah. Dan Coyle wrote this book called The Culture Code. It's been wildly successful, uh, bestseller, and uh, one of the things in there he's was, he's was talking about business advice from that you know some executive gave. But um, one of their points was pick up trash. He's like, when you work in your environment, I mean, it's the the environment of care is everybody's responsibility, and. Uh, well, I, it reminds me we had a we had I think a surgical resident in the locker room. They got, got called out, um, but this was in the female locker room. I wasn't there. It's a story I was told, but um, yeah, I think the resident just threw threw their scrubs on the floor, and one of the CRNAs called him out and said, "What are you doing?" And, the, and the, you know, she said, "Well, uh, you know, don't they pay people to pick that up?" She said, "This like this is your house. Like this is." This is your domain. Like, yeah, there's people that come through and, and you know clean up the floors and take the scrub baskets out and that kind of stuff. But put your scrubs in the in the in the you know the laundry basket essentially. Like, your mom's not here to pick up after you. You're a professional. But, yeah, no. Dan Coyle in his book, uh, pick up trash was one of the things. And just you know, just that you take ownership uh, to every level, and that everyone around you is is important. They're there. It takes every you know if housekeeping doesn't do their job. Things are gonna to slow to a crawl very quickly. So everyone around you is valuable.
1: That was a great example about the, the resident throwing their, their scrubs on the floor. I often speak about how difficult it is for anesthesia to actually hit the trash can that's right behind the anesthesia machine with all right. of our trash. And uh, whether it be a dirty um, endotracheal tube, that's nasty right. and we, we can't get it in the trash can and it hits the floor, you know, right. Clean up. pick up your trash. I haven't read the book, but I've given that example many times. For, yeah. It's a great...
0: Experience. Well, I have talked to our anesthesia techs. They appreciate it so much. They're super busy. They've got tons of rooms to turn over. And when they have to come in and pick up all the little bits of, you know, medication vial, tab, you know, tabs and that kind of stuff, it's just, it frustrates them. So yeah, ownership to uh, to the details matters. Um, I wanted to shift gears and talk a little bit about, you know, the national perspective of anesthesia care in the U.S. What are some of the trends that are affecting anesthesia practices nationally right now. Everyone always talks about, you know, economics and healthcare is putting a crunch on everybody and the belt is tightening. You mentioned earlier that anesthesia providers, uh, we are the only subspecialty that can bill for time. How did we do that? And is that going to, is that going to stay part of anesthesia in the future?
1: That's a great question. I honestly don't know how we got to build the time. It's, um, but it's, it's an interesting development. And I, I think part of it is because we're at the mercy of the surgeons that we're practicing with. Yeah. And uh, I guess the, uh, the, the, the powers that be at Medicare when they were setting these rules back in the, in the 70s and 80s determined that you know, we should be rewarded or at least still be able to collect revenue while sitting there for um, in a four-hour case that should have only taken an hour. right since it's not our our fault typically that cases go long.
0: I think it's it's always interesting. I mean, the example is that, you know, a hip surgeon gets paid a fixed amount for doing that hip replacement, whether it's easy and it takes 45 minutes or an hour, or if it's difficult and it takes four or five hours, they get the same reimbursement for that, yet the anesthesia provider is able to bill for all of those minutes that you're in the OR.
1: Absolutely, that one unit a minute uh, it's kind of enough to help pay the bills. It's usually not enough to make any anesthesia person profitable, but it's usually enough to help to kind of help pay the bills. And the, you talked a lot, or you mentioned earlier about trends in healthcare yep. and where things are going. I've been fortunate enough that I've seen a couple of cycles in, in, in the healthcare industry already. And we're coming off a cycle of consolidation of anesthesia groups in the healthcare industry. Typically, we're very, very fragmented anesthesia market, a bunch of small mom and pop. Uh, small groups or providers working for facilities and there's been a large amount of consolidation that occurred in the last decade and that is slowing down drastically mm-hmm. and to the point where we might actually start seeing some defragment. In other words, oh, interesting. We, we might start seeing some spinoffs and some some divestitures of anesthesia acquisitions that were done and you know we're hearing some rumblings about that in the industry now. So everything is pretty much cyclical and I'm really interested to see where we go in the marketplace right now
0: so you don't think that we're on a trajectory of just continued large national conglomerates soaking up smaller regional anesthesia practices i know that's even been talked about like in in the burnout literature that physician anesthesiologists crnas that are in these smaller independent groups it's a driver of burnout that your group gets bought but you don't think that's an, in, an inevitable uh progression in healthcare?
1: i don't um I've seen this market consolidation. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. And what I'm seeing right now is some national players are actually shrinking and walking away from some anesthesia contracts that are not profitable and potentially even divesting, if they're a multi-specialty group, some are contemplating leaving the anesthesia business altogether. So I think we're kind of starting to see the reversal of the consolidation that we saw in the last eight to 10 years. But what's happening is, is it's changing the mindset for growth. The growth in the last eight to 10 years for all these large companies has all been based on mergers and acquisitions. So they've been buying growth. And what we're seeing now, um, as companies are leaving and divesting certain contracts, we're seeing a greater opportunity for organic growth. And that's being fueled by part of that, by the industry trend, but also part of it by um, certain contracts no longer being profitable for anesthesia providers. And what's happening now in the marketplace is provider salaries are going up pretty drastically, pretty rapidly. Mm. And anesthesia companies are going back in and renegotiating existing contracts. So, more and more hospitals, when they're instead of renegotiating their contracts, they're going out to request for proposals and opening up an opportunity for much more organic growth in the marketplace currently. So, I think the trend is going to continue there as provider salaries continue to go up. We're going to see more and more contracts changing hands organically and less changing hands through mergers and acquisitions that we've seen in the last five to ten years.
0: That's fascinating. What else is going on out there? What other trends are affecting anesthesia providers in particular?
1: well wow, that's that's a great question. There's several there's um, we're seeing more and more changes in, in potential anesthesia models and staffing models. We talked about QZ billing earlier and the financial impact. Uh, of mitigating the risks that are associated with medical direction billing. So we're seeing more and more of an acceptance of QZ billing. And coming along with that acceptance is we're seeing uh, sometimes a more increased scope of practice for CRNAs in certain areas that's being driven by the economics and efficiency of certain models. And I think we're going to continue to see that as facilities struggle to meet the needs of their communities. There's a lot of facilities struggling right now with cost overruns, Uh, reimbursements are being decreased in a lot of areas, costs are going up. So they're looking at anywhere that they can find economies of scale and efficiencies to help become better stewards of of their uh, financial resources.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now if I'm not mistaken, uh, CRNAs and anesthesiologists are billed uh, more or less um, for the same reimbursement rate in terms of Medicare, Medicaid and private insurance, is that correct?
1: In general, that is correct. So Medicare pays the same rate for CRNAs and anesthesiologists. Uh, most Medicaid's do as well, but yeah. each Medicaid is state ran so there a couple of them have different rules. There's a couple of states that pay CRNAs um, 92, 94, sometimes 96 percent that they would pay an anesthesiologist. So there's a couple of minor variations there. And commercial payers, by and large, pay similar rates, but it's not 100% of the time. Yeah. Certain commercial payers in certain states will reimburse physician anesthesiologists or will give them a higher end network rate sometimes to CRNA companies that are billing QZ.
0: Now, uh, you mentioned just recently that you know hospitals are beginning to see a cost savings and a value from CRNAs. Where does that cost savings and value come from if both providers are essentially... They both providers cost the same amount. I mean, is is it? It's through different staffing models.
1: Well, that's another great question. So the majority of hospitals subsidize anesthesia services. So they're having to help the anesthesia groups uh, pay them certain fees to be able to be profitable, to be sustainable. So the direct cost to insurance companies and to other payers is not really much of a difference, but the. The cost savings comes from the hospitals having to subsidize less or potentially not subsidize a group that's running a more inefficient model than they are currently. So shifting the model to a more efficient model may decrease or eliminate a subsidy in hospitals potentially.
0: In and in a more efficient model means more CRNAs, or, or, or really it can mean more providers doing direct care, but less supervision, less, less overlap of anesthesia providers? Is Absolutely. The, is that the answer?
1: Yes, absolutely. So uh, to, to, in order to generate anesthesia revenue, you have to be directly providing the care or be performing medically di- medical direction over others who are providing the care. Any other model, you have non-revenue generating sources, of, but there's still an expense line.
0: Do you think that medical direction is a model that is viable for the future? In terms of kind of the macroeconomics of healthcare, are we going to, you know, 30 years from now, are you still going to have anesthesia providers supervising other anesthesia providers doing care, or is the economic kind of winch going to uh, iron that out a little bit more efficiently?
1: I think we're going to continue to see medical direction for for a period of time, and probably a relatively long period of time. Certain hospitals and certain facilities, um, the model fits the clientele and the types of cases that they're doing. And I think we're going to continue to see medical direction. Uh, The only way I think medical direction goes away is if it changes from a regulatory standpoint from, from CMS and Medicare making changes driven from the top. However, I think it's becoming less and less of the overall pie of anesthesia billing as we see more of a shift towards QZ billing. I think that trend will continue for a period of time as well.
0: Yep. Yep. That's interesting. Well, Tracy, uh, I always appreciate your perspective on the specifics of business. And I wondered before we wrap up here, if I could just ask you some questions kind of about your career and for you to reflect back on what are some of the lessons that you've had over your 20 year career in business as a CRNA?
1: I think one of the most important lessons that I've learned, and it's taken a while to learn to really sink in, is that anytime you make a decision, you always have to keep in mind that trust takes a long time to build six months, a year, multiple years to build that trust, but it only takes five seconds to lose trust by making one bad decision. I try and keep that in the forefront of my mind when we're making business decisions. And oftentimes we have to make difficult decisions. And I like to have that thought process as a guiding light towards how to make those decisions that it's easy to get a bad reputation in the business world by making one or two poor decisions. So Anytime we, we're faced with a difficult decision, we always try and make the more humanistic decision to that's make sure point. that we're making the right decision, not just for our entity and our company, but also for the individuals and the people involved.
0: Yeah, that's a great line. That's a great perspective to have. Uh, would you do it again? If you can think back 20 years ago to taking that first contract and where you are now and the challenges, the lifestyle it's brought you, that kind of stuff, would you, uh, would you do it again?
1: I think I would. I really do. Um, there's difficult days. I think you heard me say earlier today that some days you're the bug and some days you're the windshield. It's and my, It's um, one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when, when you're in business, there's, there's a lot of days where, where you're the bug. You just feel like you're just getting splat. Um, yeah. And things are coming at you really rapidly and you have to make quick decisions. But the other thing is that when you're in business for yourself, you're never off. Yep. Yeah. It's a 24-7 job. We have CRNAs, we, you know, I used to take a lot of call for OB call and surgery call. And as a business owner, you're always on call. You're always need to be responsive to, to your clients. And it, it changes the lifestyle. It's i I've had a lot of time away from family that I regret. I wish I could have spent more time at home. However, um, in the big, in the grand scheme of things, I think I would do it again. There's certain things I would do differently.
0: I was going to ask you, yeah. What, what, what are some things that you would do differently?
1: Well, finding a work-life balance is important, and that is not the same for every person, and it's not the same for every person at every stage in their life it's as a great well, point, either. Yeah. And I always talk to CRNAs, uh, especially when when we're hiring them, that it's not just salary, but it's a it's a work-life balance that needs to fit where you are. And we like to have a lot of options when we hire individuals. In other words, um, for those that have a lot of student loans and want to work extra time and get those student loans paid off, we like to give them opportunities to work extra. Those that are in a different part of their life and they want to spend more time at home, maybe they've just started having kids, or maybe they're now empty nesters and their kids have just left and they want to travel more with their spouse, that we always provide them flexibility. If they want to do job shares, we'll find another person who wants to do a job share to work with them. But meeting the needs of a work-life balance is really important. And for me, as a young business owner, when I first started, there there was too much focus on work. And less on play. And as you age and you start gaining perspective, you know, in hindsight, I wish I had balanced a little bit better some of my earlier years, but it's, um, it's all kind of the price you pay at sometimes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I can only imagine at how often your cell phone goes off. <laughs> are, th- are there any, do you have any, do you have any personal habits to kind of draw boundaries around business time, personal time, family time, just mental breaks from- the cell phone buzzing.
1: Absolutely. And 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 that's probably my probably my worst weakness is we really pride ourselves in our organization of being responsive pretty much mm-hmm. almost immediately, all the time, whenever something comes up. And I say in our organization it's our providers, our the rest of our executive team and our non executive team, we really work. We don't have seven to three hours, we don't have eight to five hours. We're we're kind of always working and we're always responding to each other. So the one of the things I struggle with is when to turn it off and I'm slowly getting better at that. And, uh, dinner time with the family, the phone goes away. Um, then there's certain times where it, it goes away and lock gets locked away for an hour. <laughs> um, and then I start getting anxiety. Cause when I look at it, I see all the text messages right, and right, missed right. calls and emails that come through. But, um, it's really important to be able to take a little bit of time for yourself and I, um, I've, I've had the pleasure of lecturing at several conferences with Matt Zender. Matt Zender's is a CRNA from Maryland and he talks a lot about um, taking care of yourself and some of his talks are on meditation and I've, I've probably heard him give the same talk three times before it kind of sunk into me and I've started meditating. Uh, I try to do it daily and sometimes just five minutes is all it takes to help yeah. a reset, refocus, and rebalance. But with the phone away guided meditation, you come out relaxed, focused, energized, and ready to work again. Sometimes uh, it only takes five minutes.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if you find that that meditative practice, uh, in fact, enhances your
1: business life. 100%. Um, I, I like... So it's kind of funny. It's, it's, it's funny talking about this because it's somewhat personal. But um, usually when I meditate, it's, it's mid-afternoon. Mm-hmm. And it's when I find myself, um, everything started kind of piling on. I'm a lister. I like to list things that I need to do. Sometimes I'll even write something on my list just to check it off because I know I just did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, sometimes around middle afternoon, I've gotten a lot of my to-do list done. And, um things start adding to it. So as I check one off, I may get four or five emails or calls or texts, and I, I add eight or nine more things to the list. So the list has actually grown and I start finding myself getting frustrated and um, and probably a little short at that time. Mm. In other words, you know, not my best me. Yeah. So I recognize that a lot better now. And that's when I, I, t- I take the phone, put it away, and do about a five minute guided meditation through an app that I use and come back much more focused, much more energized, and uh, much more ready to work, and much more tolerant and patient as well. Oh, that's great. What's the app? You mind, sharing? Insight Timer, I-N-S-I-G-H-T, Timer, T-I-M-E-R. It's on the Apple Store. I think it's uh, for Android as well, too, and it's free. Uh, you can choose meditations based on the length of time you want to meditate, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, how long you have. And then once you choose the time, you can choose based on whether you want relaxation, whether you want focus, breathing. Oh yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's really neat and it keeps track. It tells you how many days in a row you've meditated so that you kind of realize, oh, I missed a couple of days and I didn't notice it, but. And
0: now I've been out um, of shape. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of science and literature behind, um, Meditation and increasing functionality and, and increasing your ability to focus and, right. and remain present. Because a lot of times when we're not focused, it's because we're either thinking about something in the past or we're thinking about something in the future. And those things are hindering your ability to do the things that you need to do now. So when you go through a meditation process, you come out much more focused on the now and what needs to be done and you start to train your brain on how to recognize when those things start coming in you start uh, whether whether you're you're focused on potential outcomes way in the future and yeah. you're, you're dwelling on those you slowly start to train your brain on how to take a deep breath recognize that they're hindering you relax let them leave mm-hmm. and go back to focusing on the now but it's a lifelong journey and yeah I've read a couple of books on Buddhism and it's, it's amazing. They they devote their whole lives to, to trying to master that process. And it's, um, I am a extreme novice. But.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I've also heard Zinder talk on that and, uh, we, he and I have talked about, um, trying to get him on the podcast. So I need to, I, need, I think he's in Maryland. I need to head down to Maryland at some point and, <laughs> and get him on here. I think, uh, his, his work on, um, perioperative language and and framing things for patients has been profound. And he also does some excellent work on meditation, but, um,
1: He's one of the most interesting CRNAs I've had the pleasure of meeting, and, he, and it, it's unfortunate I'm such a slow learner that it, it was probably three years of knowing him before I finally started uh, <laughs> being open to, to doing some of those meditation techniques that he kept, he kept saying really worked. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chalk it up to being a slow learner or hard-headed and stubborn.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Uh, there's probably a reason that you all got to teach so much together. So I wonder, at this point in your career, what do you find that's motivating? What motivates you?
1: I still love growing the business. Yeah, I still get motivated when, when we get invited to perform a request for proposal from a facility. Uh, I love going through that process. I love digging down into the data, making sure the revenues and the expenses are accurate and correct, and understanding the process of why the hospital is looking for another anesthesia provider and seeing if we're the right fit. In other words, if it's a service issue, what can we do to improve the service? If it's a financial issue, how can we get creative and figure out a model that works for them financially and works for their patients and their surgeons? And then winning those contracts is—it's um, still fun. It's still exciting. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure if I'll ever get tired of doing that.
0: Yeah, yeah. What are the things that frustrate you the most?
1: The day-to-day management, a lot of times of um, of staffing, recruiting. Yeah. Um, uh, used to be with recruiting was pretty easy and i have a recruiting staff but it's not um, crnas and anesthesiologists as providers they don't want to talk to a recruiter about a job they want to talk to another clinician Um, our chief medical director our anesthesiologist at each hospital we make sure that they interview and talk to the anesthesiologist that we're onboarding same thing with our crna uh, providers we they want to talk to another clinician that understands the same lingo, understands the pitfalls of different jobs and, and can really speak to them on a language that they understand. And it takes a lot of time and energy and, and we're in a pretty, pretty severe shortage of providers in many of the markets where we practice. And recruiting new talent to meet the needs of our growth is, I don't wanna say it, it's rewarding, but it's also frustrating. Right, it takes a lot of work I imagine. It does. And, and usually the, that work is almost always after hours because the providers are in the operating room all day, so those, those phone interviews and conferences and going meeting at facilities are often done, you know, closer to family time than, than yeah. normal business hours.
0: Right, right. I wonder, you know, when you look at the next, you know, five, 10 years or so of your career, you have a lot of avenues and outlets for your professional life, whether it's your business, teaching, giving back to the state association. What are some things that you hope to accomplish in the years that you envision yourself continuing to work actively?
1: Well, one, I'd like to continue to grow the business. I think we've reached a point of sustainability now. We really don't have much attrition of our contracts. We really haven't gotten fired or lost any of our agreements, but uh, at the point where we are now, we've, we've... we have a nice, sustainable organization, and we've built a culture around that organization. I'd like to continue to do that and continue to grow that. For me, that's fun. That's exciting. And in some of my side hobbies still relate to business. I love doing venture capital investing and, and uh, startup capital investing for new and exciting ideas for individuals that, that have these ideas and need some help with mentoring, or sometimes they need capital. Uh, for me, those are fun and enjoyable Ventures
0: And and those are things that don't have anything to do with anesthesia.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Some aren't even in healthcare and some are. Yeah. But absolutely.
0: But they're, they're about business. And as you've said, that's the majority of your world at this point. It is. It yeah. is. And it's yeah. still
1: fun and exciting for me.
0: Yeah. That's great. Uh, I recently got a email from a listener to the podcast that was a female CRNA from Southern California, and she said, you know, hey, love love the podcast. She was actually, I think, interested in starting her own show. The angle that she wanted to talk about was uh, empowerment of women in healthcare. And I wonder from your perspective as a multi-state business owner and CEO, you've been in a lot of boardrooms of hospitals. You've worked with a lot of CRNAs, physician anesthesiologists, surgeons. What would you say to women who may be listening that want to get into business that want to own their own business that want to win contracts you know we talk about in the business world that there are inherent biases for women for minorities glass ceiling effect those kind of things I wonder if you have any advice that you would give to women or minorities or people who feel like uh, the deck is stacked against them
1: That's a great question, John. And I think it really ties back to what I mentioned earlier about trust and building trust over showing up every day and doing a great job, taking care of people and treating people well with respect and dignity. And in doing so, when a contract opportunity presents itself, someone will trust you to take ownership of that and to instill those values that you've been showing every day at work, regardless of whether you're female or a minority. And then once you get that one person to give you that chance, that's when you have to, one, meet the expectations, but two, exceed those expectations and go out and replicate it over and over again. Because once you've done it once successfully, you're a known commodity, and it's much less of a risky endeavor.
0: Yeah, so it still comes back to relationship building.
1: I really do, I think it does and and I'm sure when I tell this to mentees they get frustrated, but it really is a relationship business and it really is showing up every day, doing a great job and building that trust.
0: yeah, that's great. well, in closing, I wonder if there's anything else that you'd like to talk about or or tell cRNAs out there that may be listening in terms of the wide range of things we talked about
1: well, I'd like to thank you for having me on your podcast it's been it's yeah been thank fun. you very it's much been interesting it's been good to see you. it's been several months since we've seen each other. And um, I think I'd like to leave with the parting thought that entrepreneurship right now, not just in in anesthesia and in healthcare in general, but in America in general, is alive and well. And I'd like to encourage your listeners, if they have that entrepreneurial spirit, to continue to go out and learn and invest in themselves so that when those opportunities do present themselves, they're ready to take advantage of them.
0: That's awesome. Well, Tracy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I am so stoked that we had the opportunity to do this. And if you're willing, I'd love to have you back and maybe we can dive into some of the more specifics on business, but thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, John. Appreciate it.